Welcome to the Outer Limits of the Truth Radio Show, OuterLimitsRadio.com. I'm your host, Ryan. Welcome to part 14 of the Death Show. This is the final chapter, and I congratulate you for making it all the way to the end. And before we begin, I just want to give a special thanks to the Outer Limits of the Truth Radio Show listeners and say that you inspire me and you motivate me and you deserve a 14-part series on death. And it's been an honor taking this journey with you. And to all the new listeners that came on board just to listen to the show, thank you. And I hope that you'll stick around because we have other programs to do. We're going to explore all different topics and discussions without any hesitations. There are no sacred cows. So I have a question for everyone listening right now. What if the first 13 shows that we did were all a bunch of bullshit? What if everything we brought out was not true? What if there was a scientific explanation for everything? Every guest that we had on here, there was a scientific explanation proving that they were incorrect. The reason why I want you to ask yourself those questions is because this particular part of the program is about science and skepticism. And I believe that all beliefs, no matter how sacred they are, need to be challenged on a regular basis. I'm going to tell you from a first-time experience, I haven't had a communication with someone who's died. I have not had an angel apparition appear before me. I really have not seen miracles take place. Well, my wife married me, so I think that is a profound miracle. But I, I haven't seen a lot of the things, or many of the things at all, that our listeners, uh, sorry, that our um, experts have been talking about. So I have every... I'm probably a big, much bigger skeptic than you can imagine. I question everything, but I want to continue to seek. And on this particular program, we're going to have a debate with two atheists. I feel uh, the perspective from an atheist and agnostics are very important. But there's something about atheism that I want to bring to your attention. And that atheism, Buddhism, Catholicism, any kind of theism, theism is what I call that, will always hit a glass ceiling. There's always going to be a cap to the questioning within the pentameters of those belief patterns because if those belief patterns are challenged at their core, there's nowhere else to go. They're considered invalid. And I feel that any kind of theism is just, you're carrying the water of someone else's beliefs. That's all you're doing. Just because a lot of people believe in something, that doesn't mean you have to believe in it. I think one of the greatest contributions you can have and offer to yourself, to the world, is by developing your own belief patterns, by developing your own pers perspective. Because sometimes we, we think about the world and we say, oh, you know, it, it's got some good things, but it's, it's a terrible, scary place. Death is scary and the world is scary. And I think the reason why things are the way they are is because we're following a lot of shitty ideas. We're following shitty ideas from people who probably aren't nearly as intelligent as we are. 
Come up with your own ideas. Come to your own conclusions. You come up with your own ideas. You come up with your own conclusions. I think that's an expansion of the consciousness. Again, you don't have to carry the water for other people. Don't carry the water for their ideas. You're just as capable and just as smart and just as intelligent as anyone who self-proclaims himself to be a leader. It doesn't matter. This part of the show is going to challenge everything that we've just, just, just discussed. Let us begin the final incarnation of the Death Show. Joining us now is astronomer and author Bob Berman. You can learn more about him by going to his website at skymanbob.com. Mr. Berman is co-author of a book called Biocentrism, How Life and Consciousness are the Keys to Understanding the True Nature of the Universe. Mr. Berman, great honor and pleasure to have you with us. Thank you for being on our program today, sir. Oh, it's my pleasure. Okay. So this book, Biocentrism, I'm going to tell you, it is a, it'll blow your mind, and it really adds a lot of scientific elements and explains, I feel, why that uh, death may be illusion. Can you please explain some of the main fundamental ideas of the book and why people should engage it, even if they are scientific mind? Sure, I'll be glad to. And I'm going to emphasize, because uh, the new, the sequel came out, Bio, Beyond Biocentrism, just came out uh, this week. So I'm going to uh, emphasize things in this more clarifying book uh, rather than the original, but it's the same theme, essentially. And it, it, it revolves around the, our model of reality. Uh, and everybody knows what the current one is, which is that there was a big bang almost 14 billion years ago, and everything expanded randomly. And then about 9 billion years later, life began mysteriously on Earth and maybe other places as well. And then life began... Uh, on this uh, consciousness within the life began also mysteriously and here we are as uh, observers looking at the universe so what we do is use the science of the last 50 60 years to show why that model does not hold water and that there's a much better way for us to visualize reality actually that's what it comes down to sure what's the better way that you suggest sir well First, Einstein, as well as quantum mechanics, shows us that time and space are not inherently real. So any model that depends on a time and space framework, which ours does, after all, we all believe we're on a planet, which we are in a mm -hmm. galaxy separated from others. So there's where space comes in. And uh, subject to events that are unfolding, sometimes billions of years ago, that were set in consequence, random motions, atoms, all the rest, and so that's time-based. But what we show is what science is showing, is that we create the universe, essentially, in our minds, that the universe does not exist independently of us as observers, and that nature and the observer go together. We're correlative. We create each other. And so when you bring life into the picture and make life central to the universe instead of an accidental fluke that arose from from the universe uh, absolutely randomly uh, it changes everything and changes our perspective and shows us uh, really the importance of us as observers okay so how do you actually change the universe i mean if you acknowledge this perspective does that increase your power to influence and change the universe? No, it doesn't increase our power, but it increases your personal 
sense of, I'd say, relaxation and clarity and seeing everything with truth rather than fiction. I think everybody senses how empty the current model is. Nobody is happy with it. Uh, after all, we have a universe that popped out of nothingness 14 billion years ago, and science says we have no idea how that can happen, and common sense tells you you really can't get something from nothing. So that's a mystery. I'm not saying it didn't happen, but it's still a mystery. And then you have uh, uh, the, the universe expanding beyond which we cannot see. There's a limit of 13.8 billion light years away. Everything expands into uh, non-visibility, and the vast majority of the universe is now known to lie beyond that. And if the universe is infinite, as increasing evidence is pointing toward, it means essentially the whole universe lies beyond our view. So that's unknown as well. The arising of life is unknown. The nature of consciousness, which we use when we perceive anything, is unknown. And so essentially we have a mysterious universe. Science uses specific facts with decimal points, we say the Big Bang happened 13.8 billion years ago, the cosmic background radiation is 2.73 degrees, and all these specifics may give the illusion that we know what the heck is going on. But in truth, we don't. So the first step is seeing how the current model is not working, is not really giving us anything solid. And then the second step is using what we do know to construct a much better clearer, more satisfying model. Okay. Do you feel that the second model that you're currently working on requires a lot of individuals to take a leap of faith, to take a leap into the unknown, and to potentially um, consider some of their long-held scientific beliefs to be invalid? And if that is the case, do you feel that that could be a reason, a fundamental reason why more people are not jumping on board with this, that they're still ingrained in the ideas and that they're going to lose that sense of intellectual security by shifting and taking your perspective? That's a great question, and I think that the two parts of your question, one, a leap of faith, no, because this is exactly where the science is pointing. Uh, in fact, we spend a couple of chapters on the famous double-slit experiment, which shows over and over and over that the observer determines what's being seen, that if you're looking to tell whether a bit of light or, or a solid bit of matter like an electron is a wave or a particle, what actually happens to these things depends on how the observer is watching. In other words, we're tied in with what actually happens physically, and this doesn't require any leaps of faith at all. It's just the solid science. And we've been saying, that is, science has been saying for over a century, starting with Einstein's relativity and continuing with quantum mechanics, that space changes its dimensions depending upon things like your speed, your gravitational field, that there's no absolute reality to it. And similarly, time, and everybody kind of knows this because science fiction uses it a lot, like in the movie Interstellar a few years ago, mm -hmm. that time passes differently depending upon, again, your gravitational field, your speed, and things like that. So there's no absolute time. There's no such thing. And it's not like a, like a cucumber that you can hold in your hand or measure in a laboratory. It's something that we show is actually created in our minds as a way to make sense of the vast avalanche of electrical impulses that constantly go through our brains. So we create space and time as a way to order the universe. We animals do. It's, uh, it's like turtles with shells. 
they are part of us. And once we see that, that time and space are something that we create, we start to see how the universe is not independent of us. And there's some very easy examples to see how our minds and the universe are intertwined. So easy that uh, that that uh, once you actually read this stuff, like in Bi- Beyond Biocentrism, we have a chapter about light. And does light really exist? I mean, we all assume it does. We look out and we assume the visual world is external to us because language and even science to a degree suggests it. But we show as physics shows, that actual light has neither color nor brightness. Light is an electromagnetic phenomenon, which means pulses of magnetism and pulses of electricity. And you can't see magnetism and you can't see electricity. So the actual universe is not even black. It's blank. We are stimulated by these pulses, these electromagnetic pulses, and create the colors entirely in our minds. So the blues and the greens and the reds that we see seemingly in the external world are occurring strictly inside our skulls. Okay. Well, uh, Mr. Berman, I want to come back to this, but I want to go into something real quick and talking about how your work relates to death because you mentioned that time and space are an illusion, but for somebody who has lost someone very close to them, that illusion is exceptionally real. And how does your work apply or can be used as a consolation to those who've lost someone very close to them? Because the, the reality is that the, the person doesn't have that loved one to hold or to speak to on a conscious based level. So what can you tell that person and what can you describe as what really actually happens in your scientific nature according to when death occurs? Yes, of course. And as someone who has also lost loved ones, I I totally understand. And we're not negating that when you've lost a loved one, you don't see them anymore. You know, we're not crazy people. Um, But the actual nature of life and death can't really be apprehended until you see who you are and how the universe relates to you. So once you've fully realized that everything is taking place within your minds, that the external world, I just you know, mentioned it briefly with, with light and color. This is the, the easiest and maybe inarguable one. That once you see when you look across the room that all those uh, red books on a shelf with the red jackets on them uh, are, are not external to your mind. That's, you're actually looking at the inside of your brain when you look out and see anything. And once you fully realize that the universe itself, the entire universe, and yourself as an observer are intertwined in part of a single organism, and that's what's necessary because it shows you what you really are, not just what the universe is. Not, it's not just a, a new model of the universe. Uh, then you realize that the universe itself, the whole shebang, obviously doesn't die. It's eternal. It doesn't have an expiration point. So it, it's not something where I can tell you a sentence or two and then, boom, that's the end of it. You know you're not going to die. Obviously, we see squirrels on the road that have been hit by cars. Those bodies are gone. But are you your body or is your real reality uh, the whole shebang? And there's no halfway point. There, you have to see the full picture. And only then do you realize the nature of death. And if you don't, it sounds like crazy talk. 
you know, to say there's no death. It sounds like somebody with wishful thinking or that can't accept the reality of death. These poor authors, Lanza and Berman, they're, they're, mm. they, they, they just can't accept that death happens. No, once you see the picture of what the universe is and your own reality with it as being correlative with it, that, that's what changes it. Part of it is seeing that when time and space are not real, that our models of ourselves were of bodies that existed in time and space. That's our framework that we use. Once you see that there cannot be space and time without you as an observer, you see there are not bubbles of spatio-temporal reality that these bodies come in and out of. And that's what shows you that appearances aside, consciousness is never discontinuous. Just like we can't remember a time when we weren't, there will never be a time in the future when we aren't. In fact, there is actually no future. There really is a, a present reality. Present moment. Our minds create the, the, the picture of ongoing uh, sequences of events. But these things, I'm giving you the summaries here. Mm -hmm. They have to be laid out in terms of science. Otherwise, it sounds like philosophy or wishful thinking. And that's where the science points. No, I, I think what you're saying it makes absolute and total sense, and it's great, actually, profound insight. The question I have is, if consciousness, if the observer, never changes, and it's timeless, but if you do observe, you observe that a body, in the illusion of time, will grow old, will grow more frail, will will, will turn. I mean, it's, it's something I think that other observers will notice. I want to know, why would that occur? Why would a body be subject to the illusion of time and is the body subject to the illusion of time because of a belief pattern or a long-held belief system of several of the observers like if the observers you and I and other people decreed on a very fundamental level that the body could not age and that death could not exist could that overriding belief system ultimately end that no, I don't think so. I, I think that the bodies do age. You know, these bodies come and go, and they, they do get older. And if you wanted to believe very strongly that your body or, or that of a, a loved one will never change or never age, you'd be delusional because the bodies change. The bigger question beyond that is, are you really uh, only your body? Is that the reality? And this is, these are ancient issues. You know, they go back thousands of years. The Greeks spoke about it. Eastern religion certainly speaks about it, the oneness of everything. So there have been people through time who have attacked this philosophically or through, again, uh, Eastern thought, Eastern philosophy. What's different, what Dr. Lanza and I do, is uh, you strictly use science. That is quantum mechanics real observations, Einstein, and we show step-by-step, step, process by process, how the current model just doesn't work, and everybody really knows it doesn't work because everybody can feel how unsatisfying it is, and what, what the actual reality is. We're starting with the easy things, like I mentioned, vision, that, uh, that what you see has to be created in your mind because colors don't exist in the external universe. I mean, no scientist actually even doubts this, but it takes a while to, to really let that sink in because we have a lifetime of language and custom that the uh, visual realm is external. It's in front of our noses. It's outside of our bodies. 
I mean, one of the things is that the body, you know, look at your hands now and your feet. Uh, is that your actual body? In one sense it is, but in another is these are the um, appearances of your body that occur within your mind. In other words, your mind has created the sensations of feelings, you know, like if you pinch yourself. Of course that's occurring in your mind, otherwise you wouldn't experience it. But the sight of your feet, if you look down to your feet right now, that visual thing we already said, everything visual occurs inside your mind because light really doesn't have any color or brightness or, or reality except as we create it. So obviously the appearance of your feet is something that's occurring in your mind. So this whole image of your body is actually a mind body. It's occurring within your mind. Now, that's why we say if it, if it takes five minutes to walk, let's say down the block or to a, to a favorite store that we're visiting, it's really the mind's image of your body that you're seeing walking there. You've never really left your mind. Your body is in your mind. The so-called external world, the block, the city, all of this is happening in your mind, and it does take time for you to go from here to there. But the truth is those distant buildings are no farther from you in reality than your hands and your feet are because they're all occurring Amazing. in the same place, and that is within consciousness. But to really see this, again, with a lifetime of habit that says otherwise, we have to explore what consciousness is. We could see how the mind and the brain works, and that's where Dr. Lanza, who's a medical doctor and researcher, um, comes in. That's his specialty uh, in the book. And really understand the nature of space and time and the models of the universe, and then we see what's going on. So if we just get to the conclusions, and of course I know that's what we, we only have a few minutes here to talk about it. If we just try to get to the conclusion right right away, it sounds like it's crazy talk. So it's something that, uh, that demands that we look at the science behind it and see what's going on. Well, you mentioned that what we're observing is the universe inside of us. Well, what is the, what would you call a collective viewpoint of what the universe is. If a lot of people are all saying the same thing at the same exact time, what does that imply? How is that possible? Um, is that just a bunch of observers agreeing to, on a fundamental point or principle, can the external reality of what people are seeing occur whether or not they agree that it exists or not? Oh, yeah, absolutely, because we have two different types of knowledge, two different ways of cognizing things. There's the direct experience, and then there's this symbolic or representational or word way of representing things. Right now, of course, we're using words. What else can we do? We use symbols, and that's what we use to uh, decide on what's real and come to agreements, and, and we have to. But in truth, the word water is not actual water. But we have to perceive that way. Real water is a rather magical thing. You know, it's this transparent, dense liquid, and if you're in warm, clear water in the, in the tropics, it's, it's rather magical. And the single word water it just captures a very, very crude representation of the whole thing and the whole experience. But we have to use it. it after all, if we say pass the salt, everyone knows what we're talking about, and they pass the salt, and it works. Symbolic language works. What a lot of people aren't aware of are its limitations. And that's what we've discovered in quantum mechanics, where logic and words do not work. Like in the word world, there are uh, certain choices, things that are true or not true. 
For example, if we're discussing cats and your kitchen, we could say, well, if you have cats, at this moment they're either in your kitchen or they're not in your kitchen. Or maybe there's a third choice. Maybe you're sleeping in the doorway and they're half in and half out, partially in and partially out. But those are the only possibilities. There are no other possibilities. The cats are either in your kitchen or they're not or they're partially in. Can you think of any other choices? No, there are no other choices. But in the quantum world, electrons and other subatomic particles exist in places that we have no choices for, that we can't imagine using logic. They go from one place to another, and they've neither taken path A nor path B, nor have they taken neither, nor have they taken both, because our experiments show that this is true. So when we try to picture what the heck went on there, we can't, because it exists outside of our logic, intellectual, symbolic word system. Now, it turns out the whole meta-universe is like that. The parts obey it. We can say the planet Mars is such and such distance from us, and all that's true. But when we're talking about the universe as a whole, we're beyond what we can really picture, because there's no words for the whole thing. And so we run into frustrations and difficulties and contradictions, as, as we're already in with the Big Bang and what the universe is expanding into infinity. Uh, evidence is showing the universe is infinite. But can any of us picture infinity? Can, can we have any idea what that means? You know, you know, the universe being filled with galaxies that go on and on without end. We can't grasp that with our minds. And so the one level of experiencing things, love is like that. You know, we could tell someone that we're in love with a, with a woman and somebody says, prove it. You know, you can't prove it because you can't take love out and weigh it on a scale like a, like a particular mineral. So we have to realize when we're talking about some of these things and the, the topic of whether death exists or not is that sometimes we slip over into a realm of where words and logic don't work and we have to demonstrate the things through direct experience or else we have to talk around it with sufficient evidence that we understand, we go, oh, yeah, yeah, that's true, without actually being able to prove it. I hope this made sense. No, it, may, it makes total sense. It's great, and it's going to lead to a, another question, is that prior to something manifesting in physical reality, has there ever been a scientific explanation or way to engage this? I'll explain. Sometimes through science we're able to see uh, radio waves or x-rays or things that are not visible to the human eye is there any way that science can actually grasp or gauge energy or matter for that? Let me say, you know, I botched this question because there's just so much going on. I'll do a three, two, one. Bob, through the use of science, we are able to see certain things not visible to the naked eye. Let's say, for example, x-rays or waves that are in the universe. Is there any way, scientifically speaking, to perceive energy before it manifests into physical reality? And the reason why I ask this is because before life happens, I'd like to imagine that there is consciousness behind that that manifests into physical reality. And then when death occurs, that energy becomes one with the, uh, I don't know, non-physical reality. Is there any way to engage or see that particular energy? Uh, great great question. Great question. What science has found in the last century is that our observation creates the reality. Prior to that... Uh, and even Einstein believed this, is something called um, local realism. And um, 
there is the belief that there is a pre-existing reality that we as observers can then see and measure. For example, if there's a particular subatomic particle, it's there, even if we're not around. And looking at it, we can use our instruments and measure its position, measure its momentum, its speed, its direction, and all the rest. Well, quantum theory started out, and we're talking about it in the 1930s, showing that that's not true. These objects, the entire universe, has no reality until the moment of observation. The double-slit experiment, which has been <laughs> done over and over again, proves that this is true. We spend three chapters in Beyond Biocentrism carefully showing the double-slit experiment so that there's no doubt, nobody thinks that this is something that we're crazily coming up with. And that's why the, fa the uh, very famous uh, physicist, the late John Wheeler, uh, renowned, said that no phenomenon is a real phenomenon until it's an observed phenomenon. Because a century ago, we would have said if we see a bit of light or a particle moving in a particular way, we could confidently say, well, before we started watching it, it had this existence, it had this path, it existed in such and such a place. No longer. Now we say that its only existence is what we observe, and that, in fact, subatomic particles and photons of light only materialize uh, upon observation. Before observation, they exist in kind of a blurry, probabilistic state uh, called a wave function. And upon observation, the wave function collapses, and they become a real electron in a real place. And that depends on how we're, what our experiment is. If we're looking for position, we can nail down a position, but we can't tell motion. Uh, if we're looking for motion, we can tell motion, but we don't know really where it is in any particular moment. So our observation establishes the reality and makes the actual physical object have reality instead of having existing kind of in a blurry place with just a probability of being here or, or a probability of being there. And this sounds like such crazy talk, but uh, talk to any physicist and they'll say, yeah, that's, that's the reality, that observation establishes reality. So once again, there's the tie-in between us and observers and the physical universe around us and shows how intimately correlative we are, that we're not some accident. I totally get why physics or anybody else would want to remove humans from the, from the picture, because we screw up, we make mistakes. You know, who would want to fly in an uh, airliner that was designed by people on a hunch? Of course, we want, <laughs> we want science to do it. We don't want people involved as much as possible. But unfortunately, by removing the observer, as we've done, we've removed uh, a basis for what reality is. And one of the reasons our models do not make sense, that they're so unsatisfying, is we remove one half of the equation, which is, which is consciousness or the observer. And by taking that out of the picture, making humans into just some fluke, some accident of nature, we just barely got here, we're, we're, we're not really relevant to the universe, we're just little, little old me, we've removed... Um, a big part of the understanding about what's going on. Everything we observe happens in our consciousness. After all, we see things, we hear things, we come to conclusions about it. Um, consciousness is the movie screen upon which reality is perceived. And maybe our consciousness uh, biases us, colors what we see, influences 
our conclusions about the universe. So removing it from the picture was a big mistake, and that's what uh, Dr. Lanz and I are pointing out in Beyond Biocentrism, how important it is to bring uh, consciousness back and how suddenly the whole picture of the universe uh, now makes sense. Mr. Bob Berman, I want to tell you that I, I thought our interview was fascinating. I, I could talk with you for hours. I just uh, you were, it's some real fascinating uh, topics and discussion. And I want everyone to know that uh, Mr. Berman's new book, Beyond Biocentrism, Rethinking Space, Time, Respeaking, re, sorry, Beyond Biocentrism, Rethinking Time, Space, Consciousness, and the Illusion of Death is available. You can also check out his website at skymanbob.com. Mr. Berman, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. My pleasure, Ryan. Thanks. And now for the main event, the Outer Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show proudly presents a two-on-one no-holds-barred match. Coming now to the ring, weighing in at 185 pounds, he's the president of the American Atheist Association and a best-selling author. Please welcome Mr. David Silverman. And making his way to the ring, weighing in at 185 pounds, he's a highly respected atheist, author, and speaker, Mr. David Arnstein. And now, making his way to the ring, weighing in at... He can't weigh this much, there must be six fucking people on that scale. Mr. Ryan McCormick, the host and executive producer of the Out of Limits of Truth Radio Show. Let's get ready to rumble! All right, gentlemen, let's keep this clean. Let's have some fun. Okay, first question roll. I have for you both. Yes, first question I have for you both is, can you please give two or three reasons why you have proof beyond doubt that there is no such thing as an afterlife? David, you want to go first or you want me to do it? Uh, uh, it doesn't make a difference, however you'd like to go. Look, everything in the universe dies. Everything in the universe that lives dies. There's absolutely no reason to believe that we as humans live on in any sense. The religion was born because we want to live forever. Nobody wants to live forever more than I do. I want my daughter to live forever. I want my my mother to live forever. There is absolutely, positively, zero scientifically valid evidence to believe anything different. So doggies die, kitties die, dolphins die, chimpanzees die, and humans die. And it sucks. It's terrible. It's bad. But it's still true, and we have to deal with the truth. Not invent some fiction to pretend it's true, but actually look at the truth and deal with it as adults. That's what American Atheists is all about, dealing with the truth. Okay, so you see as death as the end-all, be-all, that nothing else happens. But the question I have for you both is, what about consciousness? How do you define what consciousness is? And is consciousness just another form of energy? And if... Yeah. Go ahead. Well, uh, you know, uh, consciousness requires the mechanics of nature rather than the supernatural uh, to work. Uh, consciousness, um, from a scientific perspective, is based on uh, chemical reactions, based on uh, electrical impulses um, in every brain. Um, uh, so it's a neurological condition. Uh, it gives us our identity. It gives us our loves. It gives us um, our, um, our our choices. And probably because we have this consciousness while we're living, 
we want to continue on because the ego suggests very strongly that uh, without that, we are um, we are nothing. And you know, it was Carl Sagan who said that um, it's better to accept uh, what's true rather than what makes us feel better. And while it might make us feel better, and as an anthropologist. Um, you know, we can see cross-culturally from almost, uh, the, well, the last 5,000 years that many religions have had um, ideas of the supernatural but, and, and uh, up until today. Um, uh, but that doesn't prove that there's a supernatural. That just proves a need to want to believe in it. Okay. Let me ask and you if both. I, if, you, if, I can, if I can go on, on top of that, Ryan, mm-hmm. um, you asked who we are and what about consciousness. I would like to just yeah. add on to what David was saying, all of which was true, that we are a pattern of firings and chemical reactions and electrical reactions. That's what we are. That's what we identify as us, a pattern of chemistry and electricity in our brains across neurons and blood vessels. And we are. And, and you used a word, Ryan, that used the word energy. Energy mm-hmm. is a very specific term. And it's not like you could just make it up and say, oh, we're all energy. No, in a way that's true, but we're all matter and energy, and energy dissipates. So what happens when you die? Well, your body uh, deteriorates immediately. The pattern dissolves in your brain, and you vanish. It sucks, but that's exactly what happens. And all the energy in your body gets dissipated through heat into the atmosphere. Can I just verify that with you both? Do you believe that life, as we know it, is mainly life within a physical body, that there is no reason for life to be held outside of a physical body or life to exist outside of anything physical beyond the realm and scope of this universe? Um, if, I, if I may, you know, I, once we even use some tech, you know, terminology, and I know language matters and words have matter. So what we have to do is decide what is a belief and what is a conclusion. That's very important because I conclude based on evidence uh, of fact, scientific fact, that we exist in a physical space, in a physical time, and that at some point we will will not, um, and that there's no evidence uh, uh, of uh, an afterlife. I want to ask you about your organization, the American uh, Atheist. Yeah. I know that you're constantly butting heads with various religious groups because religious groups want to keep God in public places, and they want to keep God in schools. Now, my understanding is that your belief is that God does not exist. So if God doesn't exist, and you believe wholeheartedly that God doesn't exist, why would it matter that anyone out there puts the word God in any public place? If you know in your heart or believe in your heart that God doesn't exist, I mean, why not let them have it? Let them have their, uh, you know, the day in the sun, and just kind of sit back and say, well, you know what? Let them do all they want. It's just not true, according to us. Because and they're the using same public thing- property. Because they're using public property to push a lie as legitimate. They're pushing. They're using public property, my public property, to push a god, a man in the sky. Really, it's 2016, and they want to push their man in the sky. Not and and, and to be specific, Ryan. Just to be specific, what we demand is equality. We do not demand that they take their God down. We demand that they take their God down or let everybody else up. That's the law. That's equality. And what they complain about is that very equality. 
they don't okay. only want to use their our public lawn to push their religion as legitimate. They want to use our public lawn to only push their views as legitimate. And no, it's not fair. It's not about fighting an invisible man in the sky. It's about fighting the believers of an invisible man in the sky who want to push their religion tax-free using our government on everybody's children, including my own. I just want to bring it back real quick to the definition of God. So various Mm -hmm. organizations believe that... God exists, and they have their own definition of what God is. Some people believe that God is a man in the sky. Some people believe that God is all things consciousness. What uh, does do atheists believe? Do you say, like, I don't believe in your depiction of God, or I have my own depiction, or I don't know? Okay, here's the, here's the easy answer. Mm-hmm. Never in world history has anything supernatural ever been proven true. The sum total of every god, every miracle, every divine instance, every psychic, every demon, every possession, the sum total of really valid proof, ghosts, demons, valid proof, all the scientifically valid proof for all of that together is zero. And if anybody can prove me wrong once, I'll quit my job. It's time for this country to grow up and realize there are no gods. There are no ghosts. There are no myths. There are, there, there are no psychics. It's all a con. It's all a lie. It's all a scam. All of it. And if anybody can prove anything, if anything supernatural ever can be proven, the same way you would prove, oh, I don't know, a man who could fly. I'm going to go there and test it. I'm going to look at it and see it. But if anyone can prove Anything supernatural ever, anywhere, I'll quit my job. That's what American Atheist says. There is no man in the sky. It's time for us to deal with reality, and it's time for us to deal with the fact that people are using lies to control us, using lies to control our politicians. Oh, no, 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 no. You can't get married because my man in the sky says it's bad. You can't earn as much as that person because my man in the sky says my man was made first. You can't have that surgery because my God says so. If anyone can prove anything supernatural ever, I'll quit my job. It's not scaring me because it's never been done in world history because it's all a scam. That's okay. what well, is about. I'm about to prove you both wrong. Because I, this I'm is, not afraid. You, are you ready for this? Right. Okay. <laughs> this whole time, I've been going two on one, and then I said a prayer to God. I go, God, please <laughs> deliver onto this show a tag team partner to take on <laughs> David and David in a respectable debate. And that tag team partner has arrived, and we're going to introduce him right now. Joining us now is the mysterious tag team partner revealed. He's author of Evidence of the Afterlife, The Science of Near-Death Experiences. Please welcome to the debate, Dr. Jeffrey Long. Dr. Long, welcome to the program. Welcome to the discussion, sir. Ryan, it is an honor and a privilege to be here. Uh, You've tried to keep this debate and discussion lighthearted, and in that vein, I will open up with a uh, lighthearted quote. Ryan, do you know why atheists cannot solve exponential equations? The answer is they do not believe in higher powers. 
No. So, uh, that's, that's actually <laughs> so kind it, of funny. It, it is kind of funny. <laughs> so in, in, in the nature of keeping this lighthearted, I'll dive in. I, I think a lot of this is evidence. Uh, atheists and everyone else, I've got some great news for you. Uh, you'll never have been so happy about what happens when you die. Uh, there's many lines of evidence in near-death experience all converging on the conclusion that there is life after death, that our consciousness survives bodily death. And again, talking about evidence, when your heart stops beating, like when you have a cardiac arrest, well, of course, immediately blood stops flowing to your brain. Ten to 20 seconds later, the electroencephalogram, EEG for your listeners, uh, goes completely flat. There's no measurable brain cortical activity, and it should be impossible to have any kind of a lucid, organized, conscious experience at that time. And yet, in the people that we've researched, by the hundreds, describe highly lucid, conscious experiences with their consciousness apart from their body, typically above wow, their Wow, Doctor, body, that must mean the EEG isn't sensitive enough. Next, please, come on. This is ridiculous. You're actually putting me on with somebody with a charlatan like this. The fact that an EEG doesn't detect brain activity does not mean there is no brain activity. It just means you need yeah, a more sensitive EEG doctor. Come on. Well, the, and, the and only, what, the what only rational it? explanation, but the only rational explanation is that there's an invisible man in the sky and you live forever, right? Well, the EEG, as I said, and very specifically measures cortical brain activity. Of course, there may still be brainstem activity, but good oh, gosh, I don't think anybody... Said. Oh, that's not what you no, said. You said I, oh, we okay. could replay okay, it. It is different. what I said. It actually is what I said. Uh, the EEG is a measure, as we all know, cortical, cortex, if you will, brain activity. But that's really mm -hmm. where consciousness is. If you don't have cortical activity, ask any physician that you know. They'll tell you if you don't have active electrical activity in your brain cortex, you cannot have the kind of highly lucid organized experience that is so overwhelmingly described in near-death experiences at that time. So, One. You know, right there you've got strong evidence just right off the bat. Sir, right, out there, right out there, you've got okay. strong evidence that you um, need a better machine, not that there's an invisible I, man. I have a question. All right, I want to bring up a, I'm going to bring up a second. I mean, these people yep. make right. money off this. People follow these people. People give these people money. They buy their books. If, if, these are charlatans. You, these are people who fake it. Yep. Come on, sir. Prove it. Prove it once. Yeah, well, okay. You know what? I have. Bring I want to, to wait, I want interview real quick. We'll we'll tape it we'll record it we'll figure it out we'll see if the consciousness come on come on let's do okay. it all right all right listen everyone i want to i'm going to throw a concept to all three of you okay and this concept is a psychological con concept it's called cognitive dissonance yeah. and it is when you know a person has a certain belief pattern or a certain belief where because they are adhering to that belief they cannot see other courses of evidence or other things that would suggest that their belief is incorrect or could be changed and, and I think that we have cognitive dissonance or are using hypnocognitive dissonance. People sometimes can be completely um, you know, committed to their belief patterns. And because Absolutely. they're committed to their belief patterns, they yeah. don't want to see anything outside of it. And I think this applies to all different beliefs. How does cognitive dissonance I double dog well, dare you, sir. Bring the evidence. I double dog dare you. Well, um, let me ask you, David. There is no life If you after don't death. believe that there's a possibility of, you know, paranormal, right. how can you ever be open to it? And how can a person oh, who is believe in chemistry? Do you have to be open to it? Do you don't believe in physics? Does it still work? Why does the paranormal mean you have to believe in it? I, you were talking about cognitive dissonance, Ryan. Why do well, you have I, to I, believe I have to, in it? You didn't get any chance yeah. to finish. 
If you give me a chance to finish, and the thought is this, is that people have certain belief patterns. And if people are being shown things that don't coincide or you know coincide with those belief patterns, they're less likely, I think, to probably engage them. So here's the thing. You have an atheist who has something that's being shown. Okay, well, this could be proof that, that there's God. And you've got a religious person who says, well, there's a proof of a doubt that God doesn't exist. Both these two people and these belief patterns are probably never going to change their positions. So oh, what I I'm will. asking you is – Oh, but I will. What would I'm it happy it, to. All you have to um, do is prove it once. All you have to you, do is okay. prove your stuff sure. once. Okay. My, my, my Dr. Long, what, what doctor, would you prove to David? Yeah, Dr. Long, what evidence do you, do you yeah. think would be well, a strong piece of evidence for these no, two I have to, to test uh, it. I have to test it. Don't right. give me third-hand or fourth-hand my, stuff. Don't give me stories. Here, I have to test it. Anytime. My, my question sure. uh, for the doctor is this. Um, if you're in a building and you're on the 10th floor, do you take the elevator or do you go out the window? <laughs> I think I like because uh, if there's an afterlife, all, if all you go out through the window, everything should be great, right? Yeah, you know that's a good point. Well, if you, I if mean, there's an afterlife. There's an afterlife yeah. there's, uh, but, I mean, why, why is it that people call nine one one when some, somebody is okay. uh, dying? I mean, if we know for fact, based on your research, that there is an afterlife, we should be rejoicing. Right. Yeah. The answer to that is the part of what we learn in near-death experiences is there is meaning and purpose of our life. It's important that we be here. It's important we have our experiences. Would you admit uh, that there's people no that have, Can I finish? Allow me to yes, finish up, of course. Um, even uh, people that have had near-death experiences that are aware of a blissful, wonderful afterlife are predisposed not to commit suicide because they understand how important it is for them to live their life, to have the experiences, to learn and grow spiritually. So that's But it would not necessarily be suicide if there's an afterlife, right? Because you'd live right. on. Right. Um, well, then the unless, other of course, it's is, a lie. The, I mean, both the other can be question, true. The other question I'd have to ask, sir, um, uh, is um, uh, I just lost uh, uh, my train of thought, so I apologize. So I guess I want to ask you. Oh, well, here's my question. Uh, can do you accept the thesis that we can be moral and ethical human beings without God belief? Oh, yeah, you can be moral. Absolutely, I agree. You can be moral okay. and ethical with any Thanks. belief, and, and, you know, pretty much any belief. Thank you. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you, do you yeah. believe it's possible that, <laughs> that a certain set of chemicals in the brain in a certain state could, could produce a similar effect across a whole bunch of different brains? Like if in you know, the last stages of life, a, a, a sort of peace could be overcome, could be, a, oh, I don't know, maybe an evolutionary track, uh, an evolutionary yeah. trait in the human brain to feel you know, at peace when you're near death and then to be brought back. You think that could be chemical and not super freaking natural? Yeah, absolutely. You know, decades ago in my medical training, I would have believed that too. But then I found scores of near-death experiences shared with me over the years where the near-death experience occurred. In other words, their heart stopped while they were under general anesthesia. Now, under general anesthesia, it should be impossible not only to have any conscious experience, but also when their heart stops, it should be, if you will, doubly impossible to have a conscious experience. If, if, if the near-death experiences were modified by any physical brain function, surely near-death experiences occurring under general anesthesia would either be impossible or at least be different from any other near-death experience, and they're not. I've actually studied that. I've published that. Near-death experiences, even under general anesthesia, occur, and their content seems to be essentially the same as near-death experiences occurring in any other circumstances. Absolutely, 
no possibility that physical brain function could be accounting near-death experiences when your heart stops and you're under general anesthesia, and that's a fact. That's, wait a, wait a uh, second. Wait a second. I I'm, not understanding your, yeah. you're, you're, I'm not understanding your, your answer to my question. I'm saying that yeah. do you understand that these near-death experiences could be chemical? You're saying that these similar, very similar near-death experiences can be, can be instigated, can be, can be no. triggered no, I'm, on I'm general anesthesia. And so it's no, not I'm a near-death experience, it's just an illusion. No, I'm saying when your heart stops, well, under defined terms, these are near-death experiences under general anesthesia. That means your heart stops, and yet at that time you're under general anesthesia. My point is, I think, frankly, most listeners get this, is that the near-death experience cannot ah. possibly, or consciousness as we understand it in our earthly, everyday life, cannot possibly ex be explained solely by physical brain function because of near-death experiences that occur under such circumstances. It's, and you so will, since we can't explain it, it must be, my, my it must question, be supernatural. Oh. Maybe, maybe your listeners can understand this. If anyone anywhere can prove anything supernatural ever, including this guy, I'll quit my job. Maybe your listeners I, can Well, yeah, I can give you an argument for a supernatural is that what happens when you have a argument. dream and, and you leave your body. I mean, I, I can't explain that for the life of me, and I can't explain personally – what exactly I'm doing in a body? I mean, I'm just my brain's hovering in this body. It's hovering above. I I, I can't explain, you know, why things happen, why they're the way they are. I find it difficult to believe that. Um, I think the argument, the idea that there's a man in the sky, is the same argument that you know this is all a result of random chemistry. I just think that they're two of the same arguments. I I can't understand or comprehend that. I, I mean, I think that's uh, they, the they, reason they are there. the same. Wow. I, 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 but basically, what you're doing, Ryan, you, you said I can't I can't understand. I can't explain how else. No, I that can't. is the God of the gaps theory. That's exactly what your doctor friend here is doing. I don't understand. Our systems can't measure anything. Therefore, it must be supernatural. Our I, it's not on the EEG. Therefore, it must be supernatural. There's no other possible explanation. You're assuming that because you don't know, it must be supernatural. That's oh, I why think I'm it, saying no. You actually I'm have enjoy, to yeah, I, I see where your argument's exists. going. I see where you're going, you're going with that argument, David, but I'm, at the same time, I'm also not seeing evidence scientifically that would refute the idea of consciousness not existing beyond the realm and scope of the human body. So I, that's what I'm saying. Like I, I'm just as open as you, David. I want to tell you something, both David. I am just as open to, to for both of you guys to see proof that there is no life after death as I am open to proof that there is. I'm open to both sides. And I want to ask you both this right now: Is that do you feel that your organization would be as passionate as it is, or as active as it is, had not members of various organized religion been so pushing um, to have their symbols on public grounds, or be so pushing? to infringe their beliefs upon other people. If they had believed, had their belief patterns and not brought this into public form, would you feel the need to be as public and as vocal with your beliefs? Excellent question, excellent question. And, and let me be very specific. We're an equal rights, a civil rights organization. We fight the infringement of religion into our lives. If religion existed and didn't push itself into the public sphere, into our place, if it didn't say we can be here and you can't, if it didn't say one nation under God, by the way, it's our God, not anyone else's God. If it didn't, if it, if none of that happened, there would be no American atheists. Okay. If I think about equality, question of the this doctor, is about equality. Um, this is about civil rights. This is about doing well. This is about being equal. This is about atheists having a place at the table equal to everyone else. You can have your Ten Commandments. You just can't have your Ten Commandments alone. You can have your God on the wall. You can say God in the public sphere, but you can't prevent other people from saying what they want to say. You can't prevent other people from putting up what they want to put up. You are 
only equal to everyone else. That's what you get from American atheists. You, you know, Ryan, you mentioned um, um, the concept of um, cognitive dissonance. One thing I'd ask the doctor is whether or not he has in his research something that we like to call in the scientific community is confirmation bias. That is, you're, you put your um, results ahead of your um, evidence. And the reason why I ask is this, doctor, um, have you, uh, in your research, um, spoken to people who've um, uh, had, um, uh, who've, who've uh, been clinically dead and felt or saw nothing? Because oh, I have. Oh, yeah. So then, so even if there's one person that says that they've not experienced what you're oh, yeah, saying, please, 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 please let Dr. Long answer. It's, it's good. Up. Yeah. Um, yeah. Actually, I think all of us here talking tonight are, are basically scientists. And a scientist means that you might be wrong. You first start out with the evidence, and then you let your conclusions be guided by the evidence, by what you see, by what you come to understand from, if you will, a series of observations. Uh, gentlemen, I've studied over 4,000 near-death experiences, so this is certainly not a small study. Um, How many people die a year? I, 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 sir, I didn't interrupt you at any time when you talk. So I'm sorry. Okay, finish. go ahead. Yeah, because that's, uh, geez. Moving on. Um, so I think as long as we're all on the same page that we want to seriously look at the evidence without cognitive dissonance, in other words, be open to what the evidence directs us to, right or wrong, I think we're all on the same page. I think we can talk rationally about this, and, and, and I think that's what your listeners want to hear, too, is a rational discussion. But, uh, folks, you know, in addition to all the other evidence we've talked about, we have people that have consciousness apart from the body. They can see ongoing earthly events even far from their physical body and far outside of the realm of any physical sensory awareness, like they code in an operating room and hear and see discussions of their family members in the hospital cafeteria verified later. Over and over we see this, and in fact, a fundamental fact of science, and I'm sure we all agree with this, is that what you're reminding you? Can I, uh, sir, we, I, you interrupted me. Um, and, and I understand our emotions are high on this, but uh, again, we no. even, I even have, have studied someone who was blind, to born totally blind at birth, had a near-death experience, and the first time they saw their body, was when their consciousness was apart from their body in the emergency room and had a highly stunningly visual near-death experience. Now, medically speaking, and, and I think all your listeners would agree, when you have people that are totally blind that have vision, that's absolutely inexplicable by brain function as we know it, and I think that's widely known. Uh, as we know it. By, by but but we do know that there are all these states of consciousness. Um, I mean, well, I, um, I do, you, do you accept people who say that they truly accept that they've been Abducted by UFOs? Are you asking me? <laughs> yeah, well, that's no. why I mean, yeah, I mean, Not because really. uh, wh why? If there, if there are thousands of people who say that they've been abducted by UFOs, uh, and uh, they will swear to their dying day that they were they were abducted um, <laughs> as part of their brain chemistry. Uh, you know what, David? I want to bring something exactly to you. I want to point out something. David, I'm bringing something you said earlier, and um, it was at the beginning of the show. You said that you don't want certain people to perpetuate their lie or their version of a lie upon everyone else. When you say someone else is perpetuating a lie, does that mean that your scope of truth is the end-all, be-all truth? Do you feel that what is truth unto one person 
is truth is their version of truth and that they should be respected and have that truth just like your belief should be respected just like everyone else who has a certain belief pattern should be respected so I'm just, what I'm asking you is do you believe that your version of the way things are is the end all be all truth for the way humanity is no, there is no and paranormal? I'm always I'm always interested in evidence to show me wrong which is why I'm saying to the doctor and to you and to everybody else mm-hmm. prove me wrong once and I'll quit my job but otherwise, you're just throwing up stories, throwing up, oh, I, I mean, I, and the whole idea that you have to believe in the paranormal before you can believe in the paranormal should, all, all of your listeners should hear that. This is a oh, scam. No. You have hey, to believe no, that's, it. That's a leap of faith. Oh, it's a leap of faith. Right, oh, leap mean, of faith. You have to have a leap of faith. No, 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 uh, no, 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 be stressed. You don't have to have faith in physics or chemistry or math. You only have to have faith in the thing that looks exactly like a scam if you don't have faith in it. Can you not see that? Prove well, it. Let me once. ask you this. How many people, you said this thing is a scam. And yes, all of you, it. I, I find it like, ever. here's the thing. I, I mean, it's, it's a numbers game. I, I just find it very difficult that there would be so many people out there. That would be doing this over so many years. That would be saying that they, you know, having these near-death experiences. Yeah. yeah. I, I find it very difficult that they, they're all charlatans. That they're all trying to get something out of you. I mean, some people I've talked with uh, on our show that have had these experiences. They're not on a book tour. You know, they, oh, they're I'm very quiet. They're very quiet. I'm not saying they're all malicious. I'm saying they're not right. supernatural. I'm well, not saying they're all malicious. I'm saying that chemical reactions in the brain, chemical reactions that can be duplicated thanks to our doctor that we now know, duplicated chemically. So they're having a chemical reaction in their brain. No, we can't detect it with current EEGs, but that does not mean it's supernatural. It just means we don't know. The fact that we don't know is not evidence for a man in the sky or an everlasting life. Come on, folks. This is what I'm talking about. We're not here. It's 2016 now. It's 2016. But There's you know no man in the sky. There are no ghosts. Okay, I, I know exactly where you're coming from, but I know I think you're, you're taking the argument against organized religion. And I'll tell you, most of the show that we've done actually has talked about the um, idea of death beyond the scope of organized religion. We're not even touching that. So I know that you're, you're hammering that in, but we're looking at uh, death in a term of a more metaphysical scope, in terms of a more open-minded scope. So let's just put organized, organized religion aside. Let's say that organized religion never had existed in the world Yet people were still having these experiences. They were having these experiences from all different backgrounds. People. If were they were the uniform and if they were constant, then it would be scientifically valid. If we're talking well, about how do you define Jeffrey Long's four thousand near death <laughs> no, experiences? What I'm saying is, 4, like, like, like doctor, I, I don't remember your name. What percentage <laughs> of people who die yeah. have these near death experiences? What percentage? Yeah, of people? About, yeah, about ten to twenty percent of people who nearly die have a near death experience. So that means ten to twenty percent. And, they all have a, and, and what about the eighty percent? Oh, we had a I mean, near-death what, experience. What is it? Do they not die? Can, can I answer if that without being interrupted? If Please. it were consistent, <laughs> if everybody had the same experience, if everybody saw the same thing, <laughs> if the Hindus saw Jesus funny. and the Jews saw Jesus, if they all saw the same thing, if it was consistent across people, we would have a conversation. And more importantly, if it was well, we measurable we don't agree, I think, and but, testable. Hey, David, Dave, please let Dr. Long answer this question. I think this is very sure. important. Yeah. Dr. Long, please go ahead. Yeah. yeah. Ryan, can I have your uh, help in answering this without interruption as moderator? Yes, please, okay. everyone. I, everyone yeah, gets their chance. That. We're, we're okay. going to make this work. Okay, thank you. Um, and I know the motion's run high here, but um, just before I jump into the question on I'm that, you know, the, the question. Be, I'm fine. <laughs> did you interrupt? Yeah, me? Right. <laughs> 
Okay, everyone, David, Brian, please, please. Dave, please let Dr. Long answer. And David, okay. when Dr. Long is on, you can you can speak without any interruption, please. Yeah. Okay. Uh, thank, thank you, Ryan. Um, I, I think our guests here, I would invite them to look at the scholarly literature about near-death experiences. There's literally been hundreds of articles written in some of the leading medical and scientific journals about near-death experience. And I will tell you, to the best of my knowledge, in the uh, hundreds of these articles that I've reviewed in my studies, I almost never see them use the term paranormal or supernatural. These are based on observations. These are based on logical inference from what's observed. The conclusion of so many of these authors, including myself, is that consciousness as we understand it, brain functions as we understand it, simply cannot explain near-death experiences that occur when there's no brain blood flow to the brain, in those born totally blind that have highly visual near-death experiences, and certainly in those that are under general anesthesia when their heart stops, when it should be doubly impossible to have any conscious experience. It's my opinion and the opinion of many others that this points most consistently to evidence that there's consciousness that exists beyond our physical body. But to get back to your question about why only 10 to 20% of people that have a near-death experience nearly die, uh, I have a great response to that, which is believed by myself and some researchers. There was actually a near-death experiencer who addressed that very question during their near-death experience. They encountered God during their near-death experience. <laughs> oh, my God. God. Can I please, okay. Ryan, all right. Ryan, no, I'm going to ask yeah, you. Yeah, David, David, please let me continue. Yeah. So if I might move on. Um, thank you, Ryan. Um, this near-death experiencer was having an incredibly blissful, positive experience, which is typical of near-death experience, a great majority anyway, and asked God directly, why me? Why was I allowed to have such an amazing experience? And God responded, love falls on everyone equally. This is what you needed to live your earthly life. So the best hypothesis I have is that there's just some people that benefit from their earthly life by having a near-death experience. And for some people, it's either not the right time or near-death experience is not the way for them to be helped in their earthly life. And yes, uh, you heard me right. God appears in many near-death experiences, uh, often very much no the benefit and growth of the near-death experience. Uh, well, I, you know, okay. um, if and this now, is going to be a conversation David, uh, about David, we're going to have now. David, I'm, we're going to have you go live right now without commercial interruption. Go, David. Please respond without commercial interruption. Uh, David, David. David. David Silverman, please. <laughs> God, David. 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 Sorry. Either David. <laughs> Uh, of course they see God. They see what they want to see, and something that you're not going to find, I'll bet, is anybody seeing a God in which they don't believe in. Uh, I'm pretty sure, I'm just going to go out on a limb here, that you haven't found many Christians who saw Vishnu, or they saw another God that they didn't believe in. No, they, they always see the God that they believe in, and that God, coincidentally, always agrees with them. Wow. It, it, it's can, almost can I, like it's a fantasy. And, and, and the thing that you said, so I, I think I've been interrupted now. So I just want to make sure that I just say it very clearly. You've said it over and over, sir. You've gone to the supernatural without saying, by, by saying, I don't understand. If we don't understand, that does not imply the supernatural. A whole bunch of people might see a whole bunch of different things. And you know what? It's not support for the supernatural, for life after death. Okay, life after death is somebody communicating from the other side, and that's never happened. Life after death, you want to show proof? Let's prove it. Show me. 
take me to, a, I don't know, let's devise a test to see how we can figure out if there's going to be a near-death experience, and let's measure it. Let's talk to people. Find your best ones. Let's talk to them. The problem is that people are so willing and so eager to prove that they're going to live forever, that they will go to any stops to see it. But the fact that a small percentage of people have a chemical reaction similar to each other, similar to being put under anesthesia when they're near death, and it makes them see the God they believe in, guess what? That's not proof that there's a God. That's just proof that people hallucinate near death. Right. Dr. Long, please respond. Then I want to bring up a question to all three of you. Dr. Long. Yeah, I, I, I would have had a lot more respect for this discussion if the question had been, Dr. Long, you studied 4,000 near-death experiences. Is there the possibility that people have encountered God that wouldn't believe they encountered God, such as atheists? And my response had there been such an inquiry, such an open-minded inquiry for what the evidence really is, would have been as follows. We actually have a series of people that actually encountered, well, had certainly a fairly large series, people that were atheists at the time they had near-death experiences, and a group that were actually encountered God during their near-death experience, who were atheists at the time they had their near-death experience. This has been published. It's it's for anybody to read. What happens when atheists encounter God is, interestingly, God doesn't judge the atheists. He doesn't declare them um, or their beliefs immoral, and just simply they're aware that they encountered God. Uh, and wow, the it, great, that's so can, amazing. Can I, I know it is amazing. I was amazed, sure, my too. Patience I, is running thin, though. I'm almost I, done I think this is more of a commercial for your book, sir. Yeah, I'm going to do an actual discussion. Done, yeah. Did I ever – I haven't mentioned my book at all, or even that I have a book. No, I, uh, can I continue? No, I didn't. I feel a little bad that emotions are running so high here, but uh, I, I, I kind of worry that we're not all on the same page, that we, we base our belief systems on evidence, not we – uh, have our uh, rather nuanced cognitive dissonance based on our beliefs in spite of evidence. But but moving on here, uh, as I said... Like having to believe in the paranormal before believing in the paranormal? Um, let me reiterate that out of the hundreds of scholarly articles in the scientific and medical literature, paranormal and supernatural is a term essentially not used. I mean, this is serious, credible research, as mine is, uh, and that's really not a relevant term. It doesn't really shows a... a lack of understanding of what's been written in the scholarly literature. And really, does, does the scholarly uh, research talk about God? Or do they talk about God? the... Yeah, God is... God is uh, or, or, or is it the scholarly I, research um, Ryan, um, that you're, that you're no. choosing? Because if, there's a lot of scholarly research about brain chemistry, uh, specifically about yeah. a near-death experience and other traumatic experiences uh, that people have as a commonality because our species is so incredibly connected to one another. We share all of the same DNA um, uh, where there's no evidence for uh, the divine uh, in uh, in near-death experiences. It's explained pretty well, uh, even by uh, who's the author who wrote The Man Who Mistook His um, uh, Wife for a Hat or Book for a Hat, or I can't remember his name. Um, And so you see over and over again... and I must say, Doctor, um, uh, that uh, I, 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 I find your um, your research to be based more on confirmation bias because clearly you're a believer, uh, and this is what you studied, than it is on actual science. And so I remain skeptical. You haven't proven to me 
And if you were to know me, you would know that I am totally open to uh, understanding the human condition much more than, and pardon the expression, I don't mean, maybe this is the wrong word, the pettiness of a particular belief system. Okay. All right, I want to uh, intervene real quick and just say this, that we're at a point right now where, first off, I want to thank you guys for this uh, discussion. It was very emotional and it was passionate, and I think that it is just what people need to hear. I think people need to be casting and always doubting and always questioning, even if it is going against their systems. And I want to ask all three of you this question. Do all three of you believe that people should be peaceful regardless of what belief pattern they have or whether they believe in an afterlife or not? I'm going to go through each person. David Silverman, what do you feel? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's David no Orstein, what do you, how do you feel? Uh, okay. I, I, I not only believe it, but I seek it in my own life. Okay. Dr. Jeffrey Long, how do you feel? Absolutely, and that's why I sought okay. to be so calm in this discussion. So you, we're at a point right now where we have total peace on the panel. And that belief is that we've come to believe that, you know, we should go about our lives very peacefully. I think that's just where we are. This is where we're always going to be. <laughs> okay. That if everyone if everyone has their own patterns of belief patterns, you believe what you believe, I believe what I believe. You, you don't put your signs on my lawn. I don't put my signs in your lawn. We go about and have our own ceremonies. Why can't we go about our lives like this? Do you, all three of you feel that if we lived our lives this way, that we would have such less conflict in the world and we would all, like, I don't know, be more harmonious? Well, of course. I mean, it, it, peaceful coexistence would be great if religion was ever in favor of peaceful coexistence. However, religion never is, and so atheists like me have to fight for peaceful coexistence all the time, which is what we do. The near-death experiencers consistently bring back a message advocating peaceful coexistence. Okay. Well, my, well, my conscious experiences lead me to the same conclusion. There we go. And they said we couldn't make peace. I swear I should be negotiating the truce between Israel and Palestine next. All right. I want to thank everyone for being – I know. That's, that's a work in progress. I want to thank everyone for being on this panel. This is fantastic. Dr. David Silverman. Yeah. To learn more about you. him by going to thank his website. What's your website? Yeah, thank you, Ryan. My, my, the organization I'm privileged to run is American Atheists, and that is at atheists.org. And my book, which is just recently published, is called Fighting God, an Atheist Manifesto for a Religious World, and it's available everywhere. Thank you so much. Excellent. Thank you so much. And David Orstein, where can we reach you, sir? Uh, you can reach me at uh, uh, paleolibrarian.info. That is my website, and I, too, have a recent book uh, published, which is called Godless grace, how non believers are making the world safer, richer, and kinder. Okay. <laughs> and Dr. Jeffrey Long, where can we learn more about you, sir? Yeah, pleasure. Thanks for on the show. Uh, our website is org. That's Experience Research Foundation. My book is Evidence of the Afterlife, the Science Near Experiences. Okay. Thank you so much, everyone. Okay, everyone, that concludes The Death Show, a 14-part series. You listened to over 70 interviews. Congratulations to you. And special thanks to our unbelievable guests. We truly had an all-star list of experts. I'm so thankful. And I meant what I said at the very beginning of the show, part one, when I'm so sorry if you've lost someone. I cannot fathom what you've gone through, but you have a friend in me. You have a friend in the show. 
And if you want to continue to walk together, we will do just that. We'll explore. We'll help you continue to listen to more shows. Wishing upon you and everyone you know an abundance of peace, love, and beers. Take good care and thank you so much for listening. I'm Ryan McCormick, host and executive producer of the Outer Limits of Energy Radio Show. Signing off. Want to be heard or seen in front of millions of people? Want to be an expert on TV or radio? Goldman McCormick PR is a New York City-based public relations agency that specializes in traditional and social media placement for law, finance, media, and corporate-based clients. Goldman McCormick PR also are specialists in website development, radio show creation, press conferences, media training, and so much more. Check out GoldmanMcCormick.com for more information. GoldmanMcCormick.com.